Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. I am thrilled to be joined by Jocelyn Lamoureux-Davidson, who is, uh, we're going to talk, oh, I'm going to talk about a lot, but she is the author of a book with her sister, of course, Dare to Make History, and it's it's really good. But before we get to the book, Jocelyn, um, well, first of all, thank you for doing this, and I'm really excited to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I, it, it was interesting, and I saw you tweeted it out. Uh, you, you know, you or Monique on um, one on the Twitter account. I don't know who's who's responsible for each of the posts. We, we just alternate. We don't we don't decipher who's tweeting what. <laughs> we all just we all just get to guess. Um, but the like, it just came to mind the NCAA basketball tournaments going on as we record, and the women's. They, there's that that's now become you know it became a, a story. But the um, women's weight room, which was a pyramid of 10 pound weights yeah something you could get at target something you could like so little thought went into that like that's literally like oh hey somebody run to walgreens and and pick this pick this thing up what you know as somebody who's been fighting for equality now for a long time and you sit here and go okay it's 2021 uh, like surely we're not doing this like what what did you what's going through your mind when you see that you know what i think it's so much bigger than just a weight room with the ncaa i mean yeah. you think about how many people had to have approved that weight room um and how many people <laughs> the oversight of that whole thing and i mean there's been more information that's come out um the the testing protocols are different for the men and for the women um the, the women are just getting the antigen test. The men are getting the PCR test, which is more reliable. So now you're talking about, you know, athletes, health and safety, just being um, valued more on the men's side. And then I've seen multiple pictures of the food, um, how, the, how the athletes are getting fed. And so when you break it down to a very basic level about, uh, you know, health and safety, how athletes are being fed in the bubble. Um, it's, it's really unfortunate. And then as the NCAA is the, the governing body of all collegiate athletics in the U S for them to have such a disparity in one of their biggest sports. I mean, it's no wonder that you have that trickling down into individual university systems. I mean, it's, how do you ex- how do you ex- expect colleges and universities to abide by Title IX and offer equal opportunity if you can't even do that for your own tournaments? Right, right, and it's it's I mean it's and I made the mistake and nobody do this of like clicking on the um, Twitter responses to the original TikTok post and you know oh, it's yeah. it's it's a cesspool of you know. But like, you know, but kind of one common refrain is the amount of money that's coming in. And I thought what was such an important part of your book um, was, you know, like when, when it got into, and we'll get into this, but when it got into your, your um, I don't want to say fight or battle, but it was at, at times with USA Hockey, it, it was never like, it, this wasn't a money thing. It was about more equitable treat. Like you really were clear, like, hey, we're not, this isn't, we want equal dollar for dollar or whatever. It was, let's make this more equitable. Yeah, well, I mean, I think with USA Hockey and national governing bodies, so other like USA Gymnastics or USA Swimming, yeah. um, they're nonprofits. Um, right. NCAA is a nonprofit. And on their mission, it says to 
uh, equally provide opportunities for our athletes, not for our, not more for our men, not less for our women. It's they're a nonprofit that's supposed to provide equal opportunity. That is their mission. I, I've seen a couple screenshots of what the NCAA's mission is and what they put on their website. And the same goes for, for USA hockey, for example, it's, it's not a for-profit business and they're supposed right. to provide equal opportunity for, for girls, women, men, and boys. And so it's, um, I think it's, it's almost comical at this point that people make the argument. And I think a lot of times it's, it's, middle-aged men who couldn't even hack the JV team in their high school careers. So, um, you know, I think people need to educate themselves. Okay. That hurt a little bit over here as someone who couldn't make the JV, but no, I'm just, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, but I, I doubt you're one of the people that entered no, the cesspool. So. I'm not in the cesspool, thankfully. Um, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I just think people need to educate themselves and know like before they, you know, throw in their two cents of, of mindless replies, um, you know, know, know what you're talking about. And I think social media, I mean, I mean, how amazing was it that that one post created such a conversation, but it's also then, then it's the back end. You do have, you know, the, the cesspool of replies. And so there, right. there's that, that positive negative spin on, on social media. But I mean, you take, you take what you can in a positive way. And then I think you disregard the rest. Yeah. I think you guys, and 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 maybe it's just because I've forgotten anything previous. What you all did as a group in 2017 might have been one of the most, the best uses of social media for something like this that we'd seen yet. You know, it was still Twitter was not in its infancy, but I don't like that was one of the first real coordinated attacks. And you mentioned in the book, but like, you know, you guys had designed your own, some of the, your own logos, you know, your hashtag, like it was very coordinated. It was, a, it was a good use of Twitter, I thought. Absolutely. And we have, you know, uh, hockey goes through, um, as far as progression goes, goes through the NCAA. So everybody on our team ha has a college degree, uh, went to mm -hmm. university. And so we have some communication majors, uh, uh, women that have worked in, in social media uh, businesses. And so, yeah, we had a full on like marketing social media blitz and we had teammates creating um, that the uh, assets for the um, for the posts and it was it was so well coordinated that multiple times we got asked about who our marketing team was. Um, right, and it, it was Team USA who was our marketing. No, <laughs> knowing the men, like uh, I don't want to. I'm not going to put anyone down, but if we would ask the men's national team to put together a marketing campaign and to design logos, I'm not sure it would go particularly well. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of done that as well. <laughs> Um, all right. How would you assess? So I don't know when the, I should probably have looked this up before having you on. You guys do a deal with USA hockey. That's a four year deal on 17. So we're like close to expiration. I don't know. Yeah. It expires uh, at the end of this month in a couple of weeks. And, um, so negotiations have been going on, uh, to, to re-sign a, a contract and renegotiate. And, um, we're in the process of, of figuring out those final terms. Um, and thankfully, uh, my sister and I are on the negotiating committee, even though we've retired. Um, uh, we're, we're very appreciative that we're on the committee to, to be able to help set the players up uh, in the next stage. And mm -hmm. we really feel like that first four-year contract is just the foundation. We want to keep building off of what we created in 2017. Um, how is it going? I don't know how much you are, want or allowed to talk about it in the negotiating 
Yeah, well, I mean, we're. I think we're in the middle of of figuring that out. But um, uh, I think the big thing is knowing that we're going to have a world championship. The IHF just announced it in mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. It's getting pushed to May, um, but it's looking like all all steam ahead for for the world championships are happening. And I think the play the players just want to play, but also look forward to creating more momentum for women's hockey as a whole in the U.S. Um, yeah. And I think after what we've done, the the women's hockey world kind of looks looks at the U.S. to to lead the charge in that regard. And so we definitely want to build off of what we created, like I said before. But yeah. um, I think there there's definitely some positive points. There's some stuff that we that we need to come to the table at, and um, I think both parties are are wanting to to make that happen. Um, I'm not you know naive enough to think that hockey won't have its own version of the NCA thing like you know what I mean like I'm not gonna sit here and think everything is solved I know I know better than that how would you assess where things are with equity in hockey as we sit here today in the NCAA I would say with us in pertaining to USA hockey and and you know across the board yeah I think I think there there's room for growth I mean I think about where where I so I I Grew up in North Dakota. I currently live in in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I look at um, you know the community itself prides itself in the the University of North Dakota men's hockey team. Uh, there's no right. longer a women's team. The university right. cut the program four years ago, um, and then I look at youth numbers and why there's like six boys teams for every one girls team. Why, why is that? Why? why aren't girls playing the sport in a town that thrives on, on being a hockey community? Um, and then if you go to Minnesota, our, our neighbors, um, more girls play hockey than, than you'd ever believe. And so trying to figure out the, the why in all of that from a grassroots level, I think is really important from a local level, but also a USA hockey level, because that's our biggest area for growth. If we're looking at numbers and, how many boys play versus how many girls play. And so I think that comes from, from the top down though. So creating more visibility for the women's national team. Um, there's been a lot of talk with PWHPA and there being a professional league, one professional league uh, in North America and having young girls being able to see women's hockey year in and year out. If you don't have a university at your disposal, I think is really important to get young girls engaged in the sport. Right. And I, and I remember this was, um, I mean, one of the, there's a lot of like telling moments in the book, or even when you think back to the negotiation. Um, but one was, you know, the amount of sticks you guys got compared to the development program. Like this is, we were talking about the national team versus, you know, the yeah. teenagers essentially and the, and the men's or even boys side, I would say at that point, how much of that, like, so, I mean, there was a fight for the national team level, but there's also this fight for lower levels. Like how, how do you take that on in, in these kind of moments? Um, I think, you know, it, it comes in steps. You can, you, I think first we need to get the support that the national team needs right? while keeping the younger teams in the conversation. It's not all about just the national team. Um, and you keep the U18 team in the conversation, but then you also compare, okay, Look at the look at the support that the NTDP program has, and we have no comparable girls program. Right. Um, okay, so if we're talking girls hockey, do we does the U.S. need a program like that, or do we need to fund something in a different way to help grow the sport? Um, but how do, how do we get similar dollars going into the girls program? And so, 
Um, I think that's, that's an important conversation, but yeah, I mean, thankfully my sister and I worked with CCM after we graduated. And so we were always taken care of, um, cause Monique and I tended to break more sticks than the rest of our <laughs> teammates at like triple the pace. It seems like. Mm-hmm. So in college we were rationing our sticks because you get so many from your, from your college team. But then we were playing, you know, at camps and tournaments with USA hockey. Some were, lit, were rationing sticks throughout the year. Um, cause at that time we weren't getting any from USA hockey. And so you just right. think about that at a basic level. It's, it's not how it should be, especially when the world junior team shows up and their goalie's got new gear and right. every, every player gets probably six to 12 sticks and we're showing up for a world championship and we're bringing our college sticks. Right. Right. Does a uh, does a national and I don't know enough to does the national development program do you think there should be a women's version would that be something that would make sense? Um you know what I th- I think it could make sense. Yeah. Um if you started with one team and they're playing universities just like um the development yeah. team is doing right now. Um they also play in the USHL and the NHL to get a lot of their games and I don't think that playing um, comparable ages would be beneficial for, for a national team if you're picking the best players out of that age group. So I think if you can figure out a schedule that makes sense, a competitive schedule, um, I think that would be, that would be great to develop our top end players. But I also think having a development program is also a kind of a small minded view of how to grow the sport as a whole and develop Mm. all your talent. I mean, that's a lot of money going into, I mean, I think it's $4.2 million going into 45 players right. um, and it's created great results, but that's, you know, you're, you're developing a very small part of the, of the pie. Um, right. and so I think there's also debate on, is that the best way to develop, um, you know, a, a generation of, of hockey players. So I, I think that's an interesting debate as well. I think it is. I, well, I think it is because, um, and, you know, when I talk to people at USA, you know, one of the, we were asking, like, where are the results on the men's national? And it's hard, right? Like, it's hard. But what it's worked better for the women's side than it is in the men. Like, the structure or whatever has resulted, I guess, better in better results at the Olympic level. Yeah, and I, I think if you look at, if you compare the U.S. to Canada, I think the U.S. typically does better at the U18s, and then Canada, you know, has a power hold at World Juniors. And so what's the difference between, you know, these two years of, of development going on? And um, so I think you can look at that. Uh, Finland's obviously gotten a lot better, too, in the World Juniors. Um, so it, I just think it's just an interesting conversation on de- development and what goes into how much money goes into 45 players versus would it be better, you know, funding, putting more funding into the USHL or something like that. It, it's just right. a really interesting, I think, bigger perspective, bigger picture look at, at how dollars can be used. Yeah. So during that window of time, I'm trying to think you would have been at Shaddix, right? So your, your, your um, development time came, I mean, so that's a, that's a great environment in which to develop, right? Like that. Absolutely. What, like what was, and I, and I got the sense your coach there might've been as influential on you as any around, right? Yeah. So um, coach Gordy Stafford, his son is Drew Stafford played over 10 years in the NHL yeah. and he just, just retired like two years ago. Um, so his first year of coaching girls hockey was our first year of playing girls hockey. And uh, my sister and I played, we played two years of Pee Wee 
Southeast about a year Bantams and then went to Shattuck. Um, there was really no competitive girls option for us to play at home or in North Dakota. And so we were fortunate to go to Shattuck St. Mary's, which is just, I mean, if you want to, if you want to try to maximize your potential in an environment, Shattuck, Shattuck was the place for us. Um, yeah. JP Parisi would still be around the rink when we were there our first, our first couple of years and working with coach Stafford. I mean, he is just, he, he loves the game. And I just think mm-hmm. that type of, attitude around the rink day in and day out, especially at a young age is contagious. Um, it was fun to be at the rink. Um, and you just wanted to play well for him. And, uh, he just, he just had a way of teaching us lessons that that resonated obviously well beyond hockey for us, um, into our, into our, you know, veteran careers on the national team. And yeah, I mean, we, we loved every minute there and coach Stafford, he's, he's a gem. Is there is there one lesson or one moment that you 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 know you would pass on or that really was impactful from that time? I think there two that we mentioned in the book actually. Um, he he talks about um, to really be at your best um, and to reach your full potential. Um, you have to really love what you're doing. You can only mm-hmm. fake it for yeah. so long. So if you don't enjoy what you're doing, I mean, you can you can go to work, but to do that long-term is really hard unless you really enjoy it. And so we talked about um, the first layer of the heart. So like for us going and we learned how to play outside on the frozen pond. Like that's what we loved growing up about the sport. And that's where he talks about like how we started to love the game was basically going out and playing outside with no rules, no parents, no coaches. Um, And I think that's, that's probably the biggest lesson that you can take into whatever it is you do in life um and has has had a huge impact no matter how tough things got for us we always remembered to bring it back to that to that memory or that moment of why are we doing what we're doing and ultimately it's because because we love what we do and want to be the best we can be there was i'm looking at my notes for it now there was a point uh, i think there was a quote from him you know when when you'd gotten to uh, you know, a point with the U.S. the USA hockey coaching staff where it wasn't going particularly well, and it was like let's let's get down to the core of what we're doing. You know, like you went home for Christmas or whatever, and it was like we're doing we're here because we love playing together and love playing hockey. And it it was just like a reset moment for you. Yeah, that's actually like. I think that's the story in the book where we use that quote is yeah the first layer of the heart is because um, Monique and I for for many people who followed our careers know or have some awareness that, that we barely made that 2008 Olympic 2018 team. Um, we, we were very close to not being sent home. And so we, we made the team went home for Christmas break. And first thing we did, I think the second day we were home, we, uh, Monique, Monique had a shoulder injury, so she couldn't play, but I brought my skates over to my parents' house with my husband and with one of my brothers and his buddies, we just put the skates on. It was zero degrees, but no wind and sunny. So it was like perfect weather. And we went outside and played two on two on the pond. And so, um, I think that's the moment where it's like, okay, I just need to have fun doing what we're doing again. Right. Just had to bring it back to that. Can we talk about how wild it is that you almost didn't make that team? That's <laughs> yeah, <come on. laughs> yeah, it is pretty wild. Um, you know what? It, for for reasons we we still don't know, it became a very uh, tough year for for my sister and I. Um, following, but prior to to that Olympic season, um, Monique had been uh, 
like on the all-star team for every world championship as a, as a D um, I was one of the leading scorers in each tournament um, the previous three years. And then we get to the Olympic season and for, for whatever reason, things just got pretty um, uh, contentious for, for some reason between us and the coaches and, um, you know, I think Monique and I have always prided ourselves in being, in being coachable, being accountable and being the best teammates we could be, regardless of what has been thrown at us. And, uh, Monique and I got sat, um, the entire four nations tournament. So that was, I believe it was about six weeks before they were going to name the national team, the, the Olympic roster. And so we got healthy scratch the entire tournament, mm. um, we, the ice for skating, like prior to the game so that we could get on the ice and be ready in case we were going to play, um, got canceled. Like we were on the <laughs> ice by ourselves, just putting ourselves through our own practices. Um, and <clears throat> still don't really know why. Um, and so basically Monique and I were like, we got to show up every single day and it's, it's basically life and death. Like we got to, it's a tryout every single practice, um, our attitude has to be where it needs to be. We got to be great teammates. Whatever chance we get on the ice, we just have to be the absolute best we can be. Um, so we ended up making the team. Um, uh, but then, uh, during the Olympics during, you know, we didn't, we didn't play a ton in the tournament. I think we were ranked like 11th and 10th and 11th in ice time out of 12 forwards. Um, but we still had very good tournaments we had very productive um uh, <laughs> <laughs> we had a very productive yeah. olympics with i would say it went well yeah yeah and um i mean you wouldn't you probably wouldn't know the ice time situation unless you were told that or like the stat was put in front right. of your face because every time monique and i stepped on the ice we're like we're gonna be we're gonna be a reason why this team wins and we just approached every single opportunity that we got to be on the ice as this is our chance to, to make a difference and really just try to be the best teammates we could be. Um, but yeah, I mean, we go into this in the book and how, how you react in those moments and how mm -hmm. you respond um, really determines, I think what you can, how you can perform and how well you can perform. Do we have any working theories on why it went sideways? Um, Monique and I were, were, we were very vocal in the negotiations, but there were a handful of teammates that were as well, um, the previous season. And, um, there, I think there were some, there were some issues going on, um, with, I mean, we talked about it in the book, there, there were some issues with, with some weigh-ins and the appropriateness of it. And Monique, basically, I think with our leadership group, it was our entire leadership group that kind yeah. of agreed that this needed to be addressed. And, Monique was the one who led the conversation. And then from that point on, um, things kind of went downhill, but I'm not entirely sure that that was the pinpoint reason why that might've been an excuse why. Uh, right. Right. But, right. uh, regardless, I think, you know, you get thrown tough moments in life and on hockey, when you're playing on a team, it's, you know, someone's going to have to sit, um, regardless if it was us or not. And so we just tried to approach every day, like, you know what, we're going to be, we're going to be the best players to ever sit in the stands and we're going right. to have the best attitudes and we're going to be the, the best, you know, bench players. If we're not going to step on the ice, we're going to be the best bench players that's ever been on this team. And that's kind of the attitude we took, took with us to the Olympics. So, so 
So I, I want to talk this through a little bit. The, I, cause I, I've dealt with a lot of coaches that motivate in different ways and players that respond in different ways. And I know there's sometimes this, this thought that you guys won in spite of the coaching staff. We, we don't know. Um, do you think any part of it was let's, let's try to maximize that line and that, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not trying to defend any decisions that were made, but was this a coaching strategy or was this just, um, to be honest, I'm not, I'm I don't not know. Really I'm not sure. trying to give anyone I'm credit. Not, I'm not sure <laughs> that, that, that was the attitude of yeah. we're going to get the best out of these two. Um, this is what we're going to do and see if it right. works. Um, so, I mean, I, we grew, our dad's from, from Alberta. He grew up in, in Fort Saskatchewan in a small town and very much had that old school mentality, like hard nose hockey. Yeah. Yeah. And show up today and work hard every day. And you're going to do like, if you got to, if you got to block a shot with your bare shins, that's what you're going to have to do to help your team win. And so, um, I think Monique and I, especially with the four older brothers that we had growing up, um, just kind of had the mentality that it, our confidence comes from within and it's not going to come mm-hmm. from our coaches and almost, you know, we just had a huge chip on our shoulder at that point. And I think because of the way we grew up, we were able to play. Um, we were able to perform under that type of pressure and scrutiny. Um, but I definitely don't, that's not how you can treat the whole. Um, I think you're right. seeing, I think you're seeing that in hockey in general and sports in general. Like if you want if you want your best out of your players, you can't be on them all the time, ragging on them, belittling them. Um, uh, I think there's there's a better way and a more positive way to get the best out of the majority um, than, right. than how how it went for us. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. um, I won't go too far into this book process stuff because it may interest only me as a writer. I know there's other people that go through this, but what, what was interesting about the book is you had, you have two authors, you, you and your sister. And I was wondering right away if they would like how you guys were going to do it. And it almost read like an oral history, right? Only you guys are, I thought it was a really good way to handle it, to go back and forth the way you did. How did that concept come about? And, and um, that, that was, go? that was the first big challenge, um, mm-hmm. of figuring out how we were going to write the book because we didn't want to, we didn't want to be in we and us all the time. Uh, right. Cause we both have our own individual experiences in life. Although much of what we have done has been very parallel and together, we both have individual experiences and have different perspectives on some major things that we've gone through. And so we wanted to make sure that we were able to share that, but, um, figuring out that balance of you know how often do you go back and forth and making sure that it flows and it's not like holy who who's talking here i'm sure i'm sure as a reader you probably have to go back and double check who's talking sometimes i did like there were times yeah i would just be like okay who you know you would just go back to the paragraph head or whatever yeah but it but it, it 
even if you had to do that, we felt like it didn't take away from the flow. You're mm-hmm. just, it's, we're twins and sometimes it's confusing. Um, right. Yeah. We felt like it was, that was the right balance to strike. Um, and so once we, once we got that figured out and kind of the flow of how we wanted to go through certain chapters, it, it became pretty easy. Um, but that was probably the first big challenge we had to figure out was how, how to use our voices in a combined mm-hmm. way, but in an individual way at the same time. So were you writing portions and sending it to each other in terms of the, pro- like, so, okay, here's where, you know, here's, we're on this part about Shaddix. Here's what I have. Um, so we, we actually worked with a collaborator, which helped us okay. create the skeleton of the book. Um, and so we were very fortunate that we had uh, someone that helped organize our thoughts, mm-hmm. basically. Um, right. And then what would happen is he basically help organize everything, send us uh, a chapter or two at a time. And then Monique and I would, we would edit, rearrange. um, uh, We would have to make clear who said what, because sometimes that would get confused. Um, But we very much were, I would say, almost over-involved in in that process. Um, But we wanted to make sure that even though we were working with a collaborator, it was exactly how we wanted it. we kind of learned throughout the process that that's not always the case uh, with, with authors who work with, with ghostwriters. Sometimes it's um, just approved and the book goes on its way and right. uh, no edits have happened. And so we very much wanted to make sure that it was exactly how we wanted to share our story and the tone was right. And it was authentically us. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, I would say having that skeleton to figure out how to actually organize your thoughts into a book was, um, was very helpful. I don't know if we would have been able to figure that out. Right. And it, like it read, it read really well. Um, I can tell like, I, this is not like, I was nervous during the Olympic moments, like it, the way, you know what I mean? Like, so you, you were able to bring the reader into that moment, which was great. I thought. That, that's awesome. We've, we've yeah. heard a couple anecdotes like that from, from friends and family, but um, just to hear that people felt like, even though you know what happened, I know. Yeah, I know. I know the ending. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, all right. And so, the, so for me and I, and I know a lot of people, the, the most, you know, the Olympic stuff was awesome, but I, you know, we like conflict, we like battles and the negotiation with USA hockey was fascinating to read about, especially from the outside. I was covering it for from ESPN's point of view. So I'm, you know, calling the law firms. I'm calling, you know, trying to get a hold of different people on the team and to hear like, hey, we want these five to be the people speaking. There was a, there was so much strategy. I didn't realize you in you probably should have. You were the first person to call John though to right? That to yeah. to talk about that. What was that moment like for you? Yeah. So I mean after um my sister and I graduated from from university, we basically it took us, I think about six months to figure out like this life, this life after college and trying to play on the national team is not easy. I made the decision to stay in North Dakota. I had just gotten married. Um, I wasn't getting, well, there was a CWHL, which was paying players, nothing. And I wasn't about to move to Boston, um, and live in Boston. Monique had a, had a boyfriend, ended up marrying Anthony, but so she moved out to Boston and it worked for her individually, but we basically were like, it shouldn't be this hard when you're that good at what you do in your national team. Like it shouldn't be this hard. We're working full-time jobs. People are, Monique was doing lessons at like five in the morning, 
uh, for kids before school, just to, to make an extra buck here and there. And so basically there there's, you can keep having commiserating around the same stuff with, with teammates at camps. And, and then it's like, okay, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. You know? And so um, our agent at the time had gotten us John's number and I just cold called John and was like, Hey, is this Mr. Langle? Um, basically explained to him what was going on, what our team was looking for. And um, he got the blessing from the the chair at the firm that he works for Ballard Spar. And he put a team together of lawyers and they agreed and are continuing to work for, for the women's national team. That's great. And, and there is a moment like in, I I'm not thinking about this, but where, the unspoken thing is how are we going to pay for this? Right. And you could, I could read almost like the relief, right. When they broached it instead of you. Yeah. I was getting to the end of the conversation and I'm like in the back of my mind, like I'm crossing my fingers. Like there's no for this conversation. (laughs) Um, And he, I, but in that conversation, he, I had to tell him how much we were not getting paid. Um, <laughs> right. So, so he had an in idea. A, in a comical way, he goes, well, I know how much you're getting paid and I know you can't afford a legal team. Um, I'll, I'll go talk to who I need to talk to, to see if we can put this into our pro bono uh, work. And, and he made it happen. And so, or, and he worked for the women's soccer team for 16 years. And so, um, it was, it, it, it couldn't have worked out better. And yet, um, not having to directly ask was kind of a, a sigh of relief for me. How about being the bill? <laughs> it was that, right, right. So there was really th- such, there was three things that were to me captured the moment, um, in th- these details. Um, one was the per diem. And I, and I vaguely remember this at the time, men were getting $50 a day. Women were getting 15, right? Yeah. If I remember correctly. Of course, it doesn't. It's no cheaper for you guys to eat the women to yeah. eat than the men. Um, then it was the sitting at the negotiating table, and it's all. Was it all women on your side, or pretty much all women? Um, it was all women except for John. Yeah, it, and USA Hockey, as we know, has been. You know, that's it's still not a great situation. I wouldn't say the most diverse group in the world, um, and all men, and that at that point. Yeah, we occasionally, um, there would occasionally be uh, a female rep, uh, Reagan Carey, who is our general yeah. manager, would sometimes be there. Um, and they did have outside counsel at one meeting that was, that was a female. But um, other than that, it was majority men all the time. Right. And there was a point where someone says, you know, I, I'm on your side on this. And it was like, there's, there's, there's no side. Like, there shouldn't be sides. Like, that's what really captured me. There shouldn't be sides to this fight. Yeah, I think that that was the fun. I remember that conversation. We were in Denver, Colorado for meetings, yeah. and um, there one of the one of the men across the table is like, "Well, our new so and so has a daughter that plays, who's so really passionate about that side of the game." And I was oh, right, like, right. I just full stop, kind of interjected, and in those meetings, a lot of the lawyers do a lot of the back and forth. Um, and, but I just was like, there. that's the fundamental issue right there is that you're saying that side of the sport, like you have to have a daughter to, to care. Um, and right. There, there were, I would say, a handful of moments like that where it's like you're kind of just shaking your head like, come on. Um, right. But, yeah, I mean, that. I think that specific moment paints a picture of the type of attitude we were dealing with at the time and the, the the culture around how they wanted to support women's hockey. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's years and years of tr- 
tradition, I guess would be the word. Like there's so much, um, and it's, I think especially at USA Hockey, and I don't know what other governing bodies are like, but there just seems to be a lot of baggage or something that just seems to slow things down for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I obviously don't work for USA Hockey, um, yeah. but I, I, I think sometimes doing things the way that have always been done and then labeling it as tradition is <laughs> backfall for not, right. for not adapting. Um, right. and I think in today's day and age to be successful, you have to, you have to figure out how the current world is working. Um, and so when you say USA hockey is not a, a, you know, that diverse hockey in general is not that diverse. Um, uh, but I think, we all have to make a better conscious effort um, because a lot of the issues that we were facing were just unconsciously happening. Um, and sometimes that's almost works because no one was, no one made the decision to not give our teams world championship rings. It was simply an oversight. Um, and so when you think about that, uh, it's, it can sometimes be more frustrating, but it's like, okay, no one, no one's maliciously doing this. They're just literally not even thinking about um, what should be happening. Right. So in some instances, that's that's definitely more frustrating. And that's like a step behind someone consciously making that decision. But um, I think, yeah, I think masking things in tradition, just because that's how they've always been done is, is why we kind of got stuck in the position we were as players. It's like the person that says, I'm not mad at you. I don't think of you at all is, you know what I mean? That's even yeah. worse. Like be mad at me. Like, yeah, I don't want to be thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's even worse. That's way worse. Have you gotten rings? Have we? I, I didn't. I, I, so we, we've got, and so my sister and I have won six world championship rings. We have four or five. I think we have four out of the six or five out of the six. It was it was in the process, and then COVID happened, so there's a delay okay. on it. Um, but I think you know another example is the the. The men's sled hockey team got their Olympic rings from USA Hockey, I believe, the summer after they won. So, call it six, seven months, and we just got ours like a month ago. So, like literally three years later. Um, no, well, congratulations, and, I guess. I mean, yeah, they're, they're they're cool it. rings, but it was three years later, um, and so it's just kind of like, why? Why is there still that disparity? <laughs> you know, the men's the men's sled hockey team got theirs. Um, you know, literally that summer and we're, we're, we just got ours a month ago. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there's USA hockey wants to write that wrong, but it's, it's still kind of like, why, why does some of this stuff take so long? Like it just shouldn't be the case. Why does it? What, like when you're like, Hey, where's my Olympic ring? That's, it's been a minute. Like what they like <laughs> it's been a minute. Um, <laughs> Well, I think, you know what, I think when we got our rings, it was, you know, we all appreciated it, but it, in a way it's still, I don't, I don't know if anyone on our team really went out of their way to be like, Hey, look at our ring three years later. Um, right. There might've been, there might've been a few of those, but I just, I'm not sure that our team really went out of our, our, our team didn't go out of our way to like make it known. Um, because it's still an ongoing issue that we're working on and not just, it's not just the rings, obviously. No, like, no, but that's what it's what it represents. Like, yeah, that's, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's what it, it's, it's, it's everything else that comes along with that delay. Um, and so I, I mean, it just goes back to the negotiations that we're currently having. I think there, there's a lot of things we agree upon. Um, there's yeah. a good positive traction, but there's also some things that, that we need to make some headway on. And so, um, I think both parties 
want to want to come to an agreement that that benefits you know the women and and USA hockey but how how we get there it will just take some more time so I, I think on some level I like the hockey media like we can't be left let off the hook either on some of this and I wanted like an honest like I think about that you know you score that goal and it's celebrated and where everyone's going it's the greatest thing ever and then we don't follow up to say hey has how has things proper things like have you gotten your ring a year later or two years later or three years later i i just would be curious what role or how do you like the public to respond or media to be better if that makes sense not that you have to decide well i think i i think people don't it's not covered because women's hockey i think is in a tough spot right now as far as there's an olympics there's a hole in the professional hockey landscape for women's hockey right now so i think there there's such a big hole in the coverage of women's hockey right now that it that it makes it difficult to cover um but it's also i think player players want i in my opinion, I think players have been focused on the PWHPA and giving that that platform the voice that that it needs. And there's been a lot of positive momentum going on. Um, but I think from in general, female sports need more coverage. But I I also believe that there's um, more than just you know ESPN. I think the stat was like four percent of ESPN coverage is female athletics and women's sports. But I also think the younger generation doesn't necessarily watch ESPN like in the in the in the conventional sense, like they're not necessarily turning on the TV to watch. So how do we how do we gain those viewerships? Um, Angela Ruggiero, former teammate of ours, um, she works for I I forget the company um, Sports Innovation Lab. And she was talking about being able to quantify how the younger next generation is is taking in sports and it's not necessarily watching on TV. It's watching highlights. It's following individual athletes. It's, you don't necessarily have the diehard Patriots fan anymore. You got the diehard Tom Brady fan who's now cheering for him in Tampa. hundred percent, hundred percent. And and so figuring out, I think how women's hockey fits into that new mold, I think is important. Um, But it, like I said, it makes it hard to cover when you're seeing women's hockey on the, on a big stage for two weeks, every four years during the Olympics. Um, We need, we need a professional league. Yeah. Yeah. How, so it's interesting because you guys were were clear in the book, like it's, you know, we're not done. This is, you know, this is a a launching point. How do you see your platform playing into that, you know, finding what that next level of or the future of coverage of you know do you see yourself as a part of that using your platform and and finding ways to highlight it absolutely uh, i'm on the i'm currently on the board right now for the pwhpa so very much involved in the the day in um operations and so there's been a lot of exciting momentum despite covid um with with individual partnerships with NHL franchises, so the the women just played at at MSG about a month ago. They were just in Chicago. They're going to St. Louis. That just got announced um, a couple of days ago. Um, they announced a partnership with the Leafs, but nothing's happening in Canada right now because of COVID. Um, right. So there's been a lot of exciting momentum um, and a lot of positive conversations. I think with with important people within the NHL and different franchises. Um, 
and that's going to be the next big step for women's hockey. So however I can be a part of it, like I'm, I'm all in, I still want to stay involved in the sport in whatever capacity that means. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I've been asked like, what's next. Um, yeah. I guess that was the long way of asking that question. I guess that was a more concise way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I can, if I can stay involved in, in a important way and help, help move this needle forward for, for women's hockey, I definitely want to stay involved. Yeah. Um, the, and I want to leave, I mean, I, I don't want to like just cherry pick from the book, but I, there, I, I remember covering at the time that such a key point was, almost this race to, to get to the lower level with the, the other women players that were, you know, maybe on the, you know, playing D2, D3 and saying, hey, this isn't just a national team fight. You know, this is all of us. What was that like? As you're just trying, you're trying to find names and phone numbers. And, and at the time, it's just to give you my perspective, I'm getting like texts from, hey, you know, uh, Jim Johansson's at this game and, you know, Adrian or whatever it was, right? Like it was, it was like, what? You got to be kidding me! So like, there was this race to get a hold of people. It was such a weird moment. Yeah, I think you know. Thankfully, um, Monique and I and John and other players on our team um, reached out to players on the U.S. soccer team to kind of prepare ourselves for what what to be ready for. Um, and so Julie Foudy, who is who is, I think, instrumental in helping us get organized. Um, she said, once you guys announce that you're not playing, they're just going to go to the next set of players. And so we, as a as a team, felt confident. Okay, the player pool is taken care of. We've talked to the U18 team. We've talked to the U22 team. Like, we're we're confident that, that we've got this. And then um, it couldn't have been more than – 48 hours. I think they decided USA hockey decided to bypass basically the entire player pool in the U18 team because everyone was saying no. And they started going to basically every American born division one hockey player. So what ended up happening, once we found out those calls were happening, we got on the phone, we basically got the number or I think we got everybody's number because we somehow knew someone on every team and we got everybody's number and we, basically divvied up numbers, started making phone calls to individual players. Um, and then it went to when we thought we were coming to an agreement, we found out that they were still calling D3 players and club players. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you mentioned that uh, JJ being at the Adrian game, I forget someone, we had a group text going and we find out that that's someone that he's at that game. And so we, the game was in Plymouth. Um, mm-hmm. And so we at Cheyenne Darkangelo, who is in the player pool, who lives in Detroit. We're like, Hey, Cheyenne, can you get to this rink and somehow go talk to these teams? Yeah. And so she, I don't know where she was in Detroit. She dropped everything she was doing, drove to the rink and basically waited to slip into one of the locker rooms after the game was over and talk to these players. And it was like the MVP play of the play of the week, play of the moment, because <laughs> it was, you know, these are players who would otherwise not get an opportunity to play on the national team. Yeah, they're, sure. they're literally like, Hey, I, you, if you want to play for team USA, we have some opportunities for some of you. Um, and so, yeah, Cheyenne was, that was the the biggest play of the, the moment of those two weeks, I think, um, or one of the, um, but yeah, I mean, to be able to have that type of support where they could not field even a starting lineup, um, 
was, I think, speaks volumes to what we were asking for as a team. What we were asking for was not greedy or selfish. It was, right. it was, I think, resonating with people that it was so much bigger than trying to, you know, get more money in our pocket. Right. That's, that's really not what it was about. Like, we'll never know, and maybe you do, but the depths of... Um people that sacrificed on some level, right? Like the D3 player who could have put a USA hockey jersey on that might never have gotten that chance. You know what I mean? And then it still said, no, this is this is a bigger cause than me. Like that's, I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think was the most, uh, you know, powerful thing in the whole experience was that we, we had so much support and it, it went well beyond the hockey community. Um, we had every major league players association voice their support. We had a, we had a group of 20 senators write a letter and sign it and send it to USA hockey. And so it was just so much bigger than um, women's hockey and what it means for women's sports. And to have that type of support, I think was, was what made this, I mean, so life-changing for us. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So here's what I'm going to ask about the shootout goal because you've had to relive it. I don't, I was, I don't want to be the typical question, you know, what was going through your mind and all that. And you get into that so good. And I want, I'm going to leave, like, go buy the books. If you're listening to this, go buy the book. It's so good. Relive that moment through, through the eyes of the players. Um, what cat, what I loved as somebody who's, um, I, you know, I, I, I love like leadership. I love preparation. I love coaching. I've got kids that I'm trying to navigate through this space that play sports. Um, and here it is, the biggest stage, and you were able to reference all this shootout preparation you'd done, watching Patrick Kane, watching TJ Oshie, and not only that, practicing this specific move with a coach thousands of times. Can, can you just speak to pre- preparation as a advantage for people that were willing to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think the only reason Monique and I were able to play, not just that game, but that entire tournament the way we the way we did was because of the confidence we had in our preparation um we certainly weren't getting it from from coaches um and when you're almost 30 years old you don't really get it from your parents anymore Um, yeah yeah and i mean that's where true confidence come from comes from when you're in a rut like what what is it that you fall back on to are you looking for someone else to to pump your tires um or are you gonna know like this is what i'm good at and this is what i need to stick to um, and so when I think about, you know, a shootout specifically, um, uh, not, not everyone wants to go in a shootout. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you play a team sport, like, you know, like there's certain players who want to go and are like, Hey, look at me. Don't forget about me, um, for the coaches. And there are certain players who literally just don't want to go. They're not, they're not confident and maybe they know that's not their skill set. Um, in a shootout, the Olympics, we'd be doing more as a team and I'd been doing really well. Um, and so basically, um, 
I mean, I, I love watching hockey. So I've seen Patrick yeah. Kane do his thing that, you know, I was listening to Bobby Getford on the NHL network from a goalie's perspective. Mm-hmm. I remember him talking about, um, that, you know, switching up shooters and deekers, um, intentionally just to throw off goalies timing. And so I remember that, um, com- there, that interview listening to that before, before that game. And so, I mean, I just think in those moments when you've prepared, you know, you know what you're going to do. You're not thinking about, oh, crap, what should I do here? Um, this is a pretty big moment. Um, yeah. You just, you prepare. And when you're prepared, it's, you know, it's game time. Um, when it's time to, when it's time to perform, uh, the preparation should be over. To me, the moment that I thought was nerve wracking was you ha- you watching Amanda Kessel like, that moment you know what i mean where you're just getting notified hey you're up and then you only if this shot goes in essentially like that's yeah so amanda needed to tie it as the fourth shooter and i think that's like a more pressure packed situation than what i was in i was like hey if i score we're we're in the lead but if i miss we still have a chance to go still um I, so yeah, Amanda, she scores. And then I, I honestly thought, I thought Niter was going to score and it was going to be game over and Zavros makes a, a stellar glove save. And so when I went out there, I was like, this is, you know, you, you prepare for these moments. You never know if you're going to get the opportunity. And um, I mean, when you're in it, I, I think most athletes know when you're in it, that's, you're not, you're not thinking about anything else. You're not thinking about how many people are watching, not necessarily even thinking about the game, you know, the games on my stick, the gold medal, you know, is, you know, it's kind of up to me at this point. Um, you're just focusing on trying to put the puck in the net. Yeah. Um, and I love, like, it, it, you approach everything this way. Like, you guys did a TED Talk, and it was, okay, let's find the best speech writer who can prepare us for this, right? Isn't that essentially what you, like, was it Michael Sheehan you used? Yeah, um, we, through, through, uh, David Cohen, who, who mm-hmm. knows Michael, they were able to, to prep us. Um, and I don't know if in a three hour session, if I've ever been, I would say cri- critiqued, I mean, criticized sounds more negative, but critiqued yeah. so much, but it was actually like enjoyable and I learned a lot. Um, and so really <laughs> figuring out how to, how to speak and Ted talks are a total different ball game than, and other types of, of speeches that, that I've given. And so I, I'm so glad that we prepared the way we did with Michael. Cause that was, I mean, that's Ted talks are, are not an easy task. Um, but it was, it was pretty, you know, when we went into it, I was nervous, but felt prepared. What was the, what was the, um, the conversation with Michael, like, what was he telling you? What kind of pointers or critiques? Well, I think, I think the biggest thing was, um, we were just reading like a poem. I forget what the poem was called. Um, and she just wanted to like use inflection. Don't, Mm -hmm. you know, don't be monotone. Um, and so when people try to enunciate or try to bring, you know, emotion or something else, um, to, to the text, they raise their voice. Um, they basically just talk louder. That's, <laughs> that's what I was doing. I was trying to to read this in a very, um, I don't even know how to describe it. I was just trying to, to read it in a non-boring way. And basically what I was doing was just raising my voice with certain words. <laughs> right. And which is what a lot of people do, but unless you practice it and read and like understand what, what the text is trying to say, um, it's hard to do that. So it's definitely, I mean, it's a skill. Um, 
And so working with him, I mean, you can tell he's worked with so many people and just when he's referencing other, other people that he's worked with and just name mm-hmm. drops, like, you know, previous presidents and people <laughs> like, holy, holy buckets. <laughs> All right. Last question. Um, you mentioned your, I think it was your grandmother who was over a hundred years old and great grandma, yeah. great grandmother, excuse me. And um, talking about being like six or eight years old and having to watch other kids go to school because um, mm-hmm. she had to work on the farm. And I just think of how now here, like here you are just a couple generations later and what, what you've accomplished. Like, do you ever look at it in those terms and you think of, you know, Hey, I'm only, you know, this is my great grandmother who had to just sit work and, you know. Absolutely. I mean, my grand, my great grandma couldn't vote when mm. until later in life, like mm. women literally couldn't vote. And so when you think about um, hardships that, that your own family has had to go through and experience mm-hmm. and, and what that what it takes to overcome something like that. And specifically for a great grandma, yeah, she had to stop going to school. It was sixth grade, I believe. And, um, and watching other kids go to school, but she was, had to work cause that's what her family needed. You think about the sacrifice and, um, she, she would share that, but then, um, she was always so funny because then later in life, um, she would, she would volunteer at the senior citizen home and she was older than all of them. And she would kind of, she would kind of make jokes about all, about all her, all her friends had died. Um, um, but she, you just think about what, what that type of life, um, you know, means and like, she's still mm-hmm. going and volunteering and giving her time to help others, I think just had such a big impact on my sister and I. And ultimately you look back and you look back at someone, you know, our, that was our great grandma and um, our other grandma had passed away just about a year and a half ago. And you're sitting at, um, we're sitting at her funeral and you think about, okay, what does this all mean? Like mm-hmm. Monique and I had to fly back to Anaheim the next day to play, um, an rivalry series game against Canada. And in, in the back of my mind, I'm like, what is this, what does this all mean? What is this all for? And if everything we did in hockey was just to win medals and win hockey games, like what a short sighted view of what mm. this journey can be about. And it's why Monique and I, you know, started our foundation or trying to give back in in a significant way, not just in sports, but to help kids, you know, meet their basic needs in life so that they can, they can, you know, reach their full potential in school. And I think the examples that our grandparents and our parents have set have really just set the stage for what we want to use our hockey careers for, um, because we're 30 and we're retired. What are we going to do for the rest of our lives now? (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's a great way to end it. So thank you so much for doing this. This was a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And congratulations on the book and at retirement at 30. That's a good, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. I want to thank Jocelyn Lamaru Davidson for joining the podcast. I was really looking forward to that one for a long time. I was, you know, I was it's basically the moment that I saw the book come out, I knew we would have an opportunity to line that up. It was a great conversation. It was fun to do. We've, you don't care about any of this, but we've switched over to Zoom, which makes for, um, you know, you can see each other, you can talk, you can, it makes for a better conversation. I, I wish we had, and maybe this is where this is headed someday, a way you could follow along on YouTube or whatever and watch it that way too, because it was fun. It was great to have that conversation with Jocelyn. So much, 
um, history, right? Like she's what an agent of change in the sport and <laughs> retired at 30 or whatever she is. That's you know that they have great things coming. So um, again, the book that she wrote with her sister Monique is called Dare to Make History, Chasing a Dream and Fighting for Equity. Uh, and it's full of detail, full of um, their, their backstory. As an American, I, I found um, the... The part about the fight with USA Hockey is so compelling. And if you're a Canadian, you even have to appreciate um, the the Olympic chapter, even though I'm sure you don't want to relive some of that. But it was just so good. Just awesome. Go go get that book and uh, and give it a read. It was, it was really good. And honestly, it's not to change subjects completely. I'm sitting here, and we're, all we're talking about right now on Slack is tim peel's the firing or whatever we're calling it of tim peel following him getting caught on the hot mic and what makes me um what came to mind first and foremost when i saw that last night so i'm recording this on wednesday this if you're listening on thursday this is a couple nights ago it was um my first instinct was like yeah like I saw it, and I was like, yeah, of course there's makeup calls. Of course, like, this is something he would say. It it didn't even occur to me, like, it didn't occur to me how bad it was. Um, because how many times have you watched a game, and you're like, oh, okay, um, it's, you know, the Predators are due here, or the Red Wings are due here, or the Maple Leafs are due here, and you know there's going to be makeup calls. It's it's ingrained in us, watching these games. And as, as you know, the you saw everybody freaking out on Twitter about it, you saw the reaction. It became more than just a hockey story. And you realize, oh, wait, by the way, this is completely wrong. Uh, it's wrong that we expect makeup calls. Um, it's wrong that my dog's barking when I'm trying to record a podcast. It's wrong that um, we have some expectation of controlling the game that includes calling penalties that aren't penalties. Like, and, and so... You saw the league come down hard on Tim Peel, even though whatever he's re- he was retiring in a month, so it's not really that that hard. But it made you know it brings to light what's wrong with officiating in the NHL, and you know I think my biggest gripe is a the the way the game completely changes in the playoffs. I would love for us as a sport to maybe stick to one brand of hockey and say this is NHL hockey, not this is playoff hockey, and this is uh, regular season hockey. So GMs don't have to build two completely different rosters or value different kinds of players based on the regular season the playoffs. One, that's one or maybe five. And then the other thing to me is the complete lack of transparency. And this is going to sound a bit self-serving as somebody in the media um, and so you, you know, take it with that. But the fact that we don't have access to these these guys after the game um, to explain themselves, to say, "Hey, Tim Peel, we caught you know the the mic was hot. Can you explain what you exactly you were say, who you were talking to and what you were alluding to there?" And and you know, and this goes over and over again. And, and we're not saying we need to pile in and and have forty of us there. Other sports, you have a pool reporter. Um, you know, I would like more access to the in, to to try to get a referee on the phone. And believe me, we've tried. These guys are great. Like, I think it would. This is a complete aside. I think it would help their image if you, as hockey fans, got to know them. And right now, you sit there and you just you want to be critical of them. But if you know those of us who have run into them at hotels on the road or had a, you know had a beer with them, like these are these are people you would love. These are just diehard. You know, they they love the game as much as the players. I mean, who else would would put in the time and effort that they do? Otherwise, 
Um, and, and, but we have zero access to that most of the time. It's like to get a, um, a fistula or a ref or whatever on an interview or on a podcast, you got to jump through a million hoops. It, it, like it's, it's counterproductive. These, these people, you know, they're smart. They can articulate. They can defend themselves. They can explain themselves. I just wish there was more transparency. I wish there was more consistency from one season to the next. And I think maybe, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen, but maybe since this becomes such a big story in such a short period of time, it's an opportunity for the league to, to address some of that. It would be awesome if they did. I don't, I'm not optimistic, but I, I'm, it would be great. All right, a couple things before we wrap up. Ron Hextall, the GM of the Pittsburgh Penguins, joined Scott and Pierre on the two-man advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. So check that out. NHL agent Tom Lynn is Mike Russo's guest. And Tom Lynn is an interesting guy. I don't even know if you can find it in the archives. I don't know how far back the full 60 interviews go. But uh, I had him on probably the first year I was doing this. And he, formerly of the Minnesota Wild front office, now an agent, is a interesting person. And I'm sure, I haven't listened yet, but I will. Mike Russo's conversation with him is fascinating. Also, make sure to check out the comments section on each one of these podcast episodes on the Athletic app. And a reminder, again, if you're not a subscriber, to go to theathletic.com full 60, you get in for a dollar a month. And if you're in Canada, go to theathletic.com slash full60canada to get that same deal. Whew. All right. This was awesome. Thanks again to Jocelyn. Thank you for listening, and have a great week.